Chapter Twenty Eight of The Side of the Angels by Basil King. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter Twenty Eight. It was Jim Breen who told Lois that Jasper Fay's tenancy of the land north of the pond was definitely ended. What a nice fern tree, Mrs. Masterman! He had asked briskly. Two or three beauties for sale at Mr. Fay's place. Look dandy in the corner of a big room. Beet palms and rubber plants like a rose'll beat a bit uh, a nice cheap one, Mr. Fay's. Lois wondered, is Mr. Fay's selling off? Well, not exactly. Father's selling what he don't want to cart over to our place. Didn't you know? Father's bought out Mr. Fay's stock. Mr. Fay's got to beat it by July ninth. As Lois looked into the honest face, she made the reflection with a little jealous pang that Rosie Fay was just the type that men like Jim Breen fell in love with. There was something in men like Jim Breen, in men like Thor Masterman, the big, generous, tender men, that impelled them toward piteous little creatures like Rosie Fay, driven probably by the protective yearning in themselves. It placed the tall women, the strong women, the women whose first impulse was to give to others rather than to get anything for themselves, at a disadvantage. In response to the information just received, she said anxiously, "'Why, Jim, tell me about it.' He drew from the wagon a wooden flat filled with zinnia plantlings, like so many little green rosettes. "'Hadleyby Hobson owns that property now, Mrs. Masterman,' he said cheerily, depositing the flat on the ground. "'Going to build, didn't you know? Have a dandy place there. Had architects and landscape gardeners prowling round for the last two weeks. An old man Fay won't allow one of them on the grounds.' "'You die laughing to see him chasing them off with a spade or a rake or whatever he has in his hand. "'His property till July the ninth, he says, "'and he wouldn't let so much as a crow fly over it if it belonged to Hadley B. Hobson. "'You die laughing.' "'I don't see how you can laugh when he's in such trouble, poor man.' "'Oh, well,' Jim drawled optimistically, "'he won't do so bad. "'He can always have a job with father. "'Father's mingled with him ever since the two of them are young.' If Mr. Fay hadn't been so moonstruck, he'd have had just the same chance as father had. Lois chose a moment which seemed to be discreet, in order to say, I know Rosie quite well. I've seen a good deal of her during the past few months. Rosie's all right, Mrs. Masterman, Jim answered suddenly and a trifle aggressively. I don't care what anyone says. She's all right. I know she's all right, Jim. She's one of the most remarkable characters I've ever met. I often wish she'd let me help her more. "'Well, you hold on to her, Mrs. Masterman,' he advised, with a curious, pleading quality in his voice. "'You'll find she'll be worth it. And ever a girl was up against it, she is.' "'I will hold on to her, Jim. "'It's all rot what people are saying, that she'd gone melancholy because she took that fool jump into the pond. "'I know how she did it. "'She'd get to the point where she couldn't help it, where she just couldn't stand any more.' with the business all gone to pieces, and Matt coming out of jail, and everything else. Who wouldn't have done it? I'd have done it myself, if I'd been a girl. She got worked up, Mrs. Masterman, and when girls get worked up, well, they'll do anything. I believe the shock's done her good. Sort of cleared her mind, like. Lois tried to be tactful. Then you see her? We'll... on and off. He grew appealing and confidential. I don't mind telling you, Mrs. Masterman he began, as if acknowledging an indiscretion. I went with Rosie once. Went with her for over a year. Did you, Jim? 
He leaned nonchalantly against Maud's barrel-shaped body, his face taking on an expression of boyish regret. And I'd have gone on going with her if, if Rosie hadn't, hadn't kind of dropped me. Oh, but Jim, why should she? Well, I can understand it. Rosie's high-toned, you know, Mrs. Masterman, and she's got a magnificent education. I guess you wouldn't come across them more refined, not in the most tip-top families. Pretty. My lord, pretty isn't the word for it. And I think she grows prettier. And work. Why, Mrs. Masterman, if that girl was at the head of a plant like ours, there wouldn't be anything for father and me to do but sit in a chair and rock. I'm glad she's willing to see you, Lois ventured. He sprang to his seat behind Maud. Well, I guess she needs all the friends she's got. Lois ventured still further. I'm sure she needs friends like you, Jim. There was a flare in his eyes. He fumbled for the reins. Well, she's only got to stoop and pick me up. Get along, Maud. Gee! In obedience to his pull, Maud arched her heavy neck and executed a sideways movement uncertainly. She knows I'm there, he continued as the wagon creaked round. "'Been there ever since she dropped me. "'Gee, Maud, gee, what are you thinking of?' "'I never gone with anyone else, Mrs. Masterman. "'Not really gone with them. "'Rosie's been the only one so far. "'Well, good-bye, and you will hold on to her, Mrs. Masterman, now, won't you?' "'Indeed I will, Jim, and, and you must do the same.' "'He threw her a rueful look over his shoulder as Maud paced toward the gate. "'Oh, I'm on the job every time.' The visit gave her a number of themes for thought, of which the most insistent was the power some women had of drawing out the love of men. For the rest of the day her gardening became no more than a mechanical directing of the setting out of seedlings, while she meditated on the problem of attractiveness. How was it that women of small endowments could captivate men at sight, and that others of inexhaustible potentialities—she was not afraid to rank herself among them— went unrecognised and undesired. If Rosie Fay had been content with the honours of a local belle, she could have had her choice among half the young men in the village. What was her gift? What was the gift of that great sisterhood, comprising perhaps a third of the women in the world, to whom the majority of men turned instinctively, ignoring or partially ignoring the rest? Was it mere sheep stupidity in men themselves that sent one where the others went, without capacity for individual discernment? Or was there a secret call that women like Rosie Fay could give, which brought them too much of that for which other women were left famishing? She put the question that evening to Dr. Sim Masterman, who had dropped in to see her, as he not infrequently did after his supper, now that Thor was away. Indeed, his visits were so regular as to make her afraid that with his curious social or spiritual second sight, he suspected more in Thor's absence than zeal for the science of medicine. Why do men fall in love with inferior women, become infatuated with them? He answered, while sprawling before the library fire, his long legs apart, his fingers interlocked over his old tan waistcoat. No use to discuss love with a woman. She can't get hold of it by the right end. Oh, but I thought that was just what she could do, one of the few capabilities universally conceded her. "'All wrong, my dear. A man occasionally understands love, but a woman never. Oh, so rarely that it hardly counts. Gets it backward, wrong end first, nine women out of ten. She looked up from her saying, "'I do wish you'd tell me what you mean by that.' 
clear enough. Love is in the first place the instinct to love someone else, and only in the second place the desire to be loved in return. Ten to one the woman puts the cart before the horse. She's thinking of the return before she's done anything to get it. She don't want to love half as much as to be loved, and so she finds herself left. Lois went on with her sewing again, but she was uneasy. She thought of her confession to Thor. Could it be that there was something wrong with her love as well as with his? It was to see what he had to say further that she asked, "'Finds herself left in what way?' "'Make themselves too sentimental,' he grumbled on. "'In love with love. They like that expression. It does them harm. Sets them to wool-gathering with the heart. Makes them think love more important than it is.' "'It's generally supposed to be rather important.' "'Rather's the word. "'But it's not the only thing of which that can be said, and more. "'Women reason as if it was. "'Make their lives depend on it. "'Mistake. "'If you can get it, well and good. "'If not, well, there's compensation.' "'She lifted her head, not less in amazement than in indignation. "'Compensation for having to do without love?' "'Heaps. And "'May I ask what?' "'Oh, no use telling you. "'Wouldn't believe me.' "'Be like telling a man who's fond of his wine "'that he'd be just as well off with water.' "'She said musingly, "'Yes, love is the wine of life, isn't it? "'Wine that maketh glad the heart of man, "'and can also play the deuce with it.' "'She sat for some time smiling to herself with faint amusement. "'Do you really disapprove of love, Uncle Sim?' "'She asked at last. "'He yawned loudly and stretched himself. "'What'll be the good of that?' "'Don't disapprove of it any more than I disapprove of the circulation of the blood. "'Force in life, of course. "'Treasure to be valued and peril to be controlled. "'The play with it requires skill. "'To utilise it calls for wisdom.' "'She had again been smiling gently to herself when she said, "'I doubt if you can ever have been in love. "'Got nothing to do with it. "'Not obliged to have been insane to understand insanity. "'Matter of fact, "'Best brain specialists have always kept their senses.' "'Oh, then you rate love with insanity?' "'Ah, depends on the kind. "'Some sort's not far from it. "'Obsession, brainstorm, supernormal excitement, "'passing commotion of the senses. "'Comes as suddenly as a summer tempest, "'thunder and lightning and rain, and goes the same way.' "'Oh, but would you call that love?' "'You bet I call it love. "'Love the poets write about.' grand passion, whirls along like a tornado, makes a noise and kicks up dust all over in an afternoon. That's the real thing. If you can't love like that, you can't love at all, not in the grand manner. The going just as vital as the coming, very essence of it that it shouldn't last. That's why Shakespeare kills his Romeo and his Juliet at the end of the play, and Wagner his Tristan and his as old. Nothing else to do with them. People of that kind go through just the same set of hijinks six or eight months later with someone else. And in poetry that wouldn't do. Romantic lovers love by crises and never pass twice the same way. People who don't do that, and lots of them don't, needn't think they can be romantic. They ain't. But surely there is a love. Of the nice, tame, housekeeping variety, of course. "'and it bears the same relation to the other kind "'as a glass of milk to a bottle of champagne. "'Mind you, I like milk. I approve of it. "'In the long run it'll beat champagne any day. 
especially where you respect babies. I'm only saying that it doesn't come of the same vintage as Verve Clico. Women often wish it did, and when it doesn't, they make things uncomfortable. No use. Can't make a Tristan out of good, honest, faithful Willem Dobbin, nohow. The thing with a fizz is bound to go flat, and the thing that stands by you to be lied on all through life won't have any fizz. Feeling at liberty to reject these vapourings as those of an eccentric old man who could know little or nothing on the subject, Lois reverted to the aspect of the question which had been in her mind when she started the theme. "'You still haven't answered what I asked, as to why men fall in love with inferior women, and often with a kind of infatuation they hardly ever feel for the good ones.' He took longer than usual to reflect. "'Part of man's dual nature.' Paul knew a good thing about that. Puts the new man in contrast to the old man, the inner man in contrast to the outer man, the spiritual man in contrast to the carnal. The old outer carnal man falls in love with one kind of person, and the new inner spiritual man with another. Depends on which element is the stronger. The higher falls in love with the higher type, the lower with the lower. But suppose neither is stronger than the other, that the equally balanced, and and in conflict. One of the commonest sights in life. Known fellows in love with two women at the same time, with a good wife at home, mother of the children and all that, and another kind of woman somewhere else. True in a way to them both. Struggle of the two natures. Lois was distressed. Oh, but that kind of thing can't be love. Can't be? It is. Ask anyone who's ever felt it, who's been dragged by it both ways at once. He'll tell you whether it's love or not, and each kind the real thing, while it lasts. It was the expression, while it lasts, that Lois most resented. It reduced love to a phase, to a passing experience that might be repeated on an indefinite number of occasions. It was more than a depreciation. It had the nature of a sacrilege. And yet, no later than the following day, she received a shock that showed her there was something to be said in its favour. She had gone nominally to see Rosie, but really to verify for herself Jim Breen's report of the collapse of Jasper Fay's little industry. She found it hard to believe that after Claude's conduct toward Rosie, her father-in-law could have the heart to bring further woe upon a family that had already had enough. Nothing but seeing for herself could coerce her incredulity. She had seen for herself... Over the little place which had always been neat, even when it was forlorn, there was now the stamp of desolation. The beds which had been seeded or planted a month before, and which should now have been weeded, trimmed, and hoed, were growing with an untended recklessness that had all the proverbial resemblance to moral breakdown. In the cucumber-house the vines had become rusty and limp, sagging from the twines on which they climbed in debauched indifference to sightliness. The roof of the hothouse that had contained the flowers had a deep gash in the glass which it was no longer worth while to mend. There was no yellow-brown plume from the furnished chimney, and the very windows of the old house with the mansard roof had in their stare the glazed, unseeing expression of eyes in which there is death. Inside, Mrs. Fay was packing up. Battered old trunks that had long been stored in some mouldy hiding-place stood agape. A packing-case held the place of honour in a forbidden best room, into which Lois had never looked before. 
Mrs. Fay had little to say. Tears welled into her cold eyes with the attempt to say anything. Outside, Fay himself had nothing to say at all. Lois had accosted him, and though he had ceased to regard her as an enemy, he stood grimly silent as his only response to her words of consolation. "'I know things will come all right again, Mr. Fay. They must. They look dark now, but haven't you often noticed that after the worst times in our lives we're able to look back and see that the very thing that seemed most cruel was the turning point at which a change for the better began? You must surely have noticed that, a man with so much experience as you.' He looked vaguely about him, standing in patience, till she had said her say, but giving no indication that her words had anything to do with him. The change in his appearance shocked her. Everything in his face had taken on what was to her a terrible significance. The starry mysticism had vanished from the eyes, to be replaced by a look that was at once hunted and searching, vindictive and yet woebegone. The mouth was sunken, as the mouths of old men become from the loss of teeth, and the thin lips, which used to be kindly and vacillating, were drawn with a hard, unflinching tightness. The skin that had long been grey was now ghostly, with the shadowy, not quite earthly hue of things about to disappear. She talked to him for some minutes before he woke to animation. At sight of two young men, surveyors clerks perhaps, who had set up in the roadway what might have been a camera on a tripod, or more probably a theodolite, through which they were squinting over the buildings and the slope of the land. He left her, abruptly. With a hoe in his hand, he crept forward, taking his place behind a clump of syringa that grew near the gate, ready to strike if either the lads ventured to put foot on his property. It was the situation at which, according to light-hearted Jim Breen, he would have died laughing, but Lois had difficulty in keeping back her tears. She found Rosie in the hothouse, of which the interior corresponded to the gash in the roof. All the smaller plants had been removed, disclosing the empty, ugly, earth-stained, water-stained wooden stagings. Only some half-dozen fern-trees remained of all the former beauty. But even here Rosie was at work, sitting at the old desk, which, deprived of its sheltering greenery, was shabbier than ever, making out bills. There was still money owing to her father, and it was important that it should be collected. Over and over again she wrote her neat, account rendered, while she added as a postscript in every case, Please remit, going out of business. And yet, if there was anything on the dilapidated premises that could cheer or encourage, it was rosy. With the enforced rest and seclusion following on her fruitless dash to escape, her prettiness had become more delicate, less worn. Shame at her folly had put into her greenish eyes a pleading timidity, which became a quivering, babyish tremble when it reached the lips. The contrast which the girl thus presented to her parents, as well as something that was visibly developing within her, enabled Lois to affirm that which hitherto she had only hoped or suspected, that the wild leap into the pond had worked some mysterious good. Like her father and mother, Rosie had little to say. The meeting was embarrassing. There were too many unuttered and unutterable thoughts on both sides to make intercourse easy or agreeable. All they could achieve was to be sorry for each other, in a measure to respect each other, and to make up by an enforced, slightly perfunctory goodwill for what they lacked in the way of spontaneity. Lois took the chair on which Rosie had been seated at the desk, 
while Rosie leaned against a corner of the empty staging. It furnished the latter with something to say to be able to tell the new plans of the family. Her father had taken a job with Mr. Breen. It wouldn't be like managing his own place, but it would be better than nothing. He had also rented a tenement in a three-family house on the Thorley estate, to which they would move as soon as possible. It was important to make the change so as to be settled when Matt came out of jail. Both Rosie and her mother were glad that he wouldn't be free till the 10th of July, because the lease terminated on the 9th. He would return, therefore, to absolutely new conditions, and there would be no necessity of going over any of the old ground again. As far as they were concerned, Rosie and her mother, the sooner they went, the better they would like it, since they had to go. But, poor father, Rosie said with a catch in her voice, won't leave till the last minute has struck. Even then, she added, I think they'll have to drive him off. This place has been his life. I don't think it'll last long after he's had to leave it. Having given sympathetic views on these points as they came up, Lois rose to depart. She had actually shaken hands and turned away when Rosie seemed to utter a little cry. That is, her words came out with the emotion of a cry. "'Mrs. Masterman, I, I want to ask you something.' Lois turned in surprise. "'Yes, Rosie, what?' With one hand Rosie clung to the staging for support. The back of the other hand was pressed against her lips. She could hardly speak. "'Is, is, is Claude staying away on my account?' Before Lois could answer, Rosie added, "'Because he, he needn't.' Lois wondered, "'What do you mean by that, Rosie? "'Only that, that he needn't. I, "'I don't care whether he stays away or not.' Lois took a step back toward the girl. "'You mean that it doesn't make any difference to you what he does?' She shook her head. "'No, not now, not, not any more. "'That is, you've given him up?' Rosie sought for an explanation. "'I haven't given him up. I only... See. You see what, Rosie? Oh, I don't know. It's, it's, it's like having had a dream, a, a strange, awful dream, and waking from it. Waking from it? Rosie nodded. She made a further effort to explain. After I, I did what I did that day at Duck Rock, everything was different. I can't describe it. It was like dying and coming back. It was like, like waking. "'Do you mean that what happened before seemed unreal?' She nodded again. "'Yes, that's it. It was like a play.' But she corrected herself quickly. "'No, it wasn't like a play. It was more than that. It was like a dream, an awful dream, but a dream you like, a dream you'd go through again. "'No, you wouldn't go through it again. It would kill you.' She grew incoherent. "'Oh, I don't know. I don't know. It's it's gone, just gone. I, I don't say it wasn't real. It was real. It was a kind of frenzy. It got hold of me. It got hold of me, body and soul. I couldn't think of anything else while it lasted.' Lois was pained. "'But, oh, Rosie, love can't come and go like that.' "'Can't it? Then it wasn't love.' But she contradicted herself again. "'Yes, it was love. It was love while it lasted.' While it lasted, while it lasted, the phrase seemed to be on everyone's lips. There was distress in Lois's voice as she said, "'But if it was love, Rosie, it, it ought to have lasted.' And Rosie seemed to agree with her. 
Yes, it ought to have. But it didn't. It went away. It, no, it didn't go away. It just... It just wasn't. She wrung her hands, struggling with the difficulties she found in explaining herself. After that day at Duck Rock, it was like... It was like the breaking of a spell that was on me. Everything was different. It was like seeing through plain daylight again after looking through coloured glass. I didn't want the things I'd been wanting. They were foolish to me. I saw they were foolish and... and impossible. But it wasn't as if they had died. It was as if I had... and come back. It was on behalf of love that Lois felt driven to make a protest. And yet, Rosie, if you were to see Claude again... "'No, no, no!' the girl cried excitedly. "'I don't want to see him. He needn't stay away. Not on my account, but I shan't see him if I can help it. It would be like dying the second time. All the same, he needn't be afraid of me, and his family needn't be afraid of me. I want to... I want to forget them all!' Enlightenment came slowly to Lois, because of her unwillingness to be convinced of the heart's capriciousness. That love could be likened to brainstorm, obsession the tornado whose rage dies out in an afternoon, was a wound to her tenderest beliefs. That the natural man must be taken into consideration as well as the spiritual also did violence to what she would have liked to make a serene, smooth theory of life. She stood looking long at the girl, studying her subconsciously, before she was able to say, calmly, "'Very well, Rosie dear, I'll let Claude know. I can get his address and I'll write to him.' but another surprise was in store for her. She was near the door leading from the hothouse when she became aware that Rosie was behind her and heard the same little gasping cry as before. "'Mrs. Masterman, I want to ask you something!' Lois had hardly looked round when the girl went on again. "'You know father and mother. They think the world of you, mother especially. Do you suppose they'd mind very much if I... if I turned?' Lois was puzzled. "'If you did what, Rosie? "'If I turned, if I turned Catholic?' "'Oh!' "'The reformed tradition was strong in Lois. "'She was prepared to defend it by argument and with affection. "'For a minute she was almost on the point of stating "'the historical Protestant position "'when she was deterred by the thought of Dr. Sim. "'What would he have said to Rosie? "'She remembered suddenly something that he once did say. If you can seize any one aspect of the Christian religion, do it, for the least of them all will save you. Remembering this, Lois withheld her arguments, asking the non-committal question, Why should you think of doing that? Rosie flushed. Oh, I don't know. I've been... She hung her head. I've been pretty bad, you know. I've told lies, and I, I tried to kill myself and everything. And you think you'd get more help that way than any other? "'Oh, I don't know. I went twice lately. Not here, in town. It frightened me. I I liked it.' Had Lois dared, she would have asked if Jim Breen had inspired this sudden change. But she said merely, "'Oh, I don't believe your father and mother would feel badly in the end. Not if it brought comfort to you, Rosie dear. Is it that you want me to talk to them, to help you out?' Rosie nodded silently, and with face averted in a kind of shame. "'Very well, then, I will.' She felt it due to her own convictions to add, "'Perhaps I can do it all the better, because—because because my personal opinions are the other way.' 
They'll see I'm only seeking whatever may make for your happiness. There was silence for a few seconds before she said, in conclusion, And, oh, Rosie dear, I do hope you'll be happy, after all, all that's been so hard for you. Rosie was too strong and self-contained to cry, but there was a mist in her eyes as they shook hands again and parted. That night Lois wrote to her husband, "'You ask me, my dear Thor, if I see my way yet, and frankly I can't say that I do. I begin, however, to wonder if there's not a reason for my remaining puzzled and so long in the dark. I begin to ask if I know what love is, if anybody knows what it is. Do you?' If so, what is it? Is it the same thing for everyone, or does it differ with individuals? Is it a temporary thing, or a permanent thing, or does it matter? Is it one of the highest promptings we have, or one of the lowest? Or is it that primary impulse of animate nature which, when developed and perfected, leads to God? Is there a spiritual man and a carnal man, each with a love that can conflict with the love of the other? Is the one man on the side of the angels, as Uncle Sim would say, and the other man on that of the flesh, till the stronger gains the victory? Or is there something in love of the nature of obsession? Does it come and go like the tornadoes, violent in its passage, but as quickly passed? For, darling, I begin to be afraid of love. If we are to start again, I want it to be on some other ground, a new ground, a ground we don't know anything about as yet but which, perhaps, we shall discover. End of chapter 28